Hi, I'm Rick Atkins, pastor here at CFCC. Welcome. We hope you enjoy this sermon and that God uses it to grow you in your relationship with Him. Before we get started, our goal is not to replace your investment in a local church with online content. We were made for community. We want to encourage you to engage in a local church with your gifts. See, when the people of God invest in the community of God, they experience the transformative power of God. And that is our hope and prayer for you. Again, thanks for joining us and we hope you enjoy the sermon. So 2023 is coming to a close. Busyness and excitement of the holiday season is in full swing. And Christmas is just around the corner. So as we prepare ourselves to celebrate the time where we remember the birth of Jesus, where God stepped into human history, the creator became like his creation. There's this sense of awe, right? Like why would God leave the comfort and glory of heaven to come to earth, born as a commoner among us, born in a place with the animals, to be like us? Why is exactly the right question. Because Jesus came with a purpose. <coughs> Excuse me. So in order to fully appreciate the advent of God, we need to understand what that purpose was. We need to understand why Jesus came and what he came to do. So uh, as we mentioned last week for this particular Christmas series, uh, we're not looking at your traditional Christmas texts with angels and shepherds and magi, oh my, but rather looking at texts that show the purpose, the meaning, and, the, and what Jesus came here to do. See, there's something innate inside us that desires to feel important, to be special. And that's not new to us in the 21st century. If you look across every culture in history, you will find crazy stories that things that people did in order to stand out, to make a, a place for themselves in society, to elevate themselves to a certain position. There's just something in us that wants to feel important. And even with religious people, right? and sometimes especially with religious people, one of my, my favorite things will happen is sometimes I'll be in the back and somebody will come introduce themselves to me. And after hello, they immediately start just digesting their spiritual resume. Like, oh, I was at this church for this year, and I did this, and I did this, and I did this. And I'm like, that's, that's awesome. Like, I usually just go from hi to how are you? I like that juxtaposition a lot. It's just real neat for me, but that's cool. Now I know your whole thing. Because there's a part of us that just wants that validation of thinking, oh, man, I, I matter. I mean something. I'm important. That process we see all the way back into the New Testament. So if you've got a Bible or a Bible app, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 20, verse 20, uh, as we look at a little bit of what happens and how this kind of attitude is so pervasive in our lives, even in some of the people that we would respect the most in ministry. So uh, 20, verse 20 of the book of Matthew says this, then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him, him being Jesus, with her sons, kneeling before him and asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? And she said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left hand in your kingdom. All right, so Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. The disciples believe it's for his inauguration. And so they're looking at this. When Jesus says, we're going to head to Jerusalem, they're excited. <clears throat> 
Because they think it means Jesus is going to take up his mantle of Messiah. He's going to throw off the Roman oppressors, reestablish the physical nation of Israel, sit on the throne of David, and bring back a golden age for the people of God. And so like, okay, this thing that we've been waiting for, the kingdom that we've been hoping to see, what we've been longing for and desiring, it's finally coming to pass. This is the time. And so what we see with the disciples is there's three times in the Gospels that we're told that they have this same argument about which of them is the greatest in the kingdom of God. Now, the fact that the Bible tells us it happened three times means it probably happened a whole lot more than that. And every time they have the argument, Jesus rebukes them. So James and John, they get clever. They send in mom. Their mother's a woman named Salome. Likely she is Jesus' aunt. And her purpose is to go pull on Jesus' heartstrings. And so she approaches him in humility. She kneels down before him. Her goal is to emotionally manipulate Jesus into giving her kids what she wants. So let me just say this. You can use all the clever ploys and strategies you want to try to get something from Jesus. Right? Because we, we've all been there, right? Let's just, like, just for, for solidarity's sake, who's prayed the prayer, God, if you let me win the lottery, I'll split it with you. <laughs> it can't just be me, all right? Like, that's not a thing. Like, some of y'all need to get real honest with Jesus right now. Okay. <laughs> Right, but we a lot of times we go to Jesus and we try to make these deals and we try to forge negotiations with him. If you give me this, I'll do that. If you fix this problem for me, I'll pray more. If you take care of this thing for me, I'll go to church more. If you give me what I want here or take away my pain, I'll read my Bible more. And so we try to have these negotiations to get some extra bonuses for ourselves in our relationship with Jesus. And here's the thing I want to tell you, they never work. You know why? Two reasons. One, they're fundamentally flawed. That's the big reason. The little reason is that Jesus is not a director sitting in a conference room listening to your PowerPoint presentation where you can offer him a couple of colorful graphs and some clever statistics to make him do something he wasn't already going to do. Because when Jesus looks at you, he's not looking at the presentation. He's not looking at how you set it up in front of him. He's looking at the depths of your heart. So the only person that we deceive when we try to go make deals and negotiate with Jesus is ourselves. So Salome comes, and she's trying to get something for her kids. She wants them to win the argument, to be declared by Jesus to be the greatest in his kingdom. And she does that by asking about his seating. See, in the first century, your status is determined by your seating. In the throne room, the two most important people outside of the ruler, the one that sits at the ruler's right, sits in the seat of honor. That's the most important person in the room. And the one who sits at his left sits in the seat of power. That's the second most important person in the room. But this was so integrated in their society, it wasn't just for rulers and throne rooms. It was also at banquets and feasts. So when they had all these feasts, they weren't just like, hey, let's get together and have food. This was how they elevated themselves through society. Where you sat at the table determined your status in the culture. And so if you could move your seat, you would lift yourself, elevate yourself, your family, your name in the culture around you. So at the dinner table, the host sits at the head, and the seats on either side of him are the two most important people at the banquet. And the further away from the host you get, the less important you are. So the disciples 
have been arguing about which of them is the greatest for years. Now Salome comes, Peter, or James and John, they send mom to go, hey, let's just put them at those two seats. I know they're already in your inner circle, but there's that Peter guy too. Let's just bump him to third. Okay, he can get the bronze medal. That's fine. He can brag about that to mom, but I'm here, right? Give my kids these two spots. She's asking for the two greatest seats of honor in the kingdom of God. And so Jesus responds here in verse 22. Jesus answered, you don't know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we are able. And he said to them, you will drink my cup. But to sit at my right hand and at my left is not for me, mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. So Jesus says, guys, you don't know what you're asking for. See, the disciples think that Jesus going to Jerusalem is a good thing. Yeah, there's people trying to kill Jesus. Yes, the religious leaders put out an actual mafia-style hit on Jesus so that anybody sees him, they kill him, they get a reward. But they're like, this isn't going to happen. This is the guy who has defeated demons, calmed storms, healed the sick, raised the dead, fed an army with a kid's sack lunch. Jesus is Superman. He's bulletproof. They might try to kill him, but it's not going to work. When he goes to Jerusalem, he's going to take over. He's going to establish the kingdom. And that's the time for us to be put into our positions and our glory. Because the disciples, like the rest of the Jews, believed that the Messiah was going to be a militant political revolutionary. No one was expecting a savior who would suffer. And so Jesus alludes to that suffering with two metaphors. One, baptism. The other here that he uses is drinking of the cup. He's hinting at what's to come. They miss it because that's what church people do. Jesus makes a point. We miss the point. That's just our, nay, our way. He says, can you drink of this cup? And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, we could drink the cup. Because they think the cup is honor. They think the cup is responsibility. They think the cup is the authority that's going to come from being in those positions. So they're like, yeah, we're ready for the responsibility, Jesus. It's time to knight us as your two favorites. And Jesus says, you will drink of it. And they do. James is the first of the disciples to be murdered. John's the only one that isn't. But not for lack of trying. They tried to kill him. They boiled him alive, but he survived. So they exile him to Patmos. He's the last living, according to church history, the last living disciple, which means he saw, he watched all of his friends, his coworkers, his brothers and sisters in Jesus die. And he lived. They got to drink of Jesus' cup. But it wasn't what they expected it was. They were asking for position. What Jesus was promising was persecution. Verse 24. And when the ten heard it, they became indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and the great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many." So the other disciples heard about this. They're upset. 
with James and John. But let's be honest, they're not upset because James and John tried to pull a fast one. They're upset because they did it first. The nerve. How dare you do the thing that I was going to do before I did it. Now I don't get the chance to try. Because they still don't get it. Three years they've walked with Jesus. Three years they've listened to him speak, taking notes, recording things. They've got whole bunches of things that Jesus said that we're not even aware of because they didn't get recorded. They've lived with Jesus, walked with Jesus, seen what Jesus does for three years, and they still don't understand. They're still bickering and arguing and boasting about which of them is the greatest. Who does Jesus love the most? Let me just say this. Because sometimes we think that somebody who's been in church for a long time must be by default mature. It doesn't mean that. There are Christians who have been Christians for longer than I've been alive that could not clearly communicate the basic message of the gospel. Being in church for a long period of time doesn't mean you understand. It doesn't mean that you're mature. That happens when the perspective of your life changes. So you can know a whole lot of Bible verses but not know Jesus. See, the problem that we have is that our default is to look not from a kingdom perspective, but from our culture's perspective. I mean, look at how we build churches. Jesus gives us a community that's built on his kingdom for his glory, focused on him, and what we turn it into is a functional business. Where typically, the model for success is how many butts do you have in seats? Oh, he said butts in church. <sighs> right? Not faithfulness to the gospel. Not faithfulness to what Jesus has called you to do. Is it big? Is it growing? Is it numbers? I understand the argument that we make to justify focusing on numbers. I'm not saying they don't matter. But when they become the exclusive means through which we govern success, through which we define success, we have an issue with what we're focusing on. but we model churches after businesses. The pastor, well, he's the CEO. The elders are the board of directors. It's not their job to shepherd, which is literally what the word elder means, to be amongst the people engaging and building relationships with them. It's their job to be the guys in the room making decisions based on what they think and how they feel. We even get to points where people will be like, well, I give to the church, and so you work for me. I pay your salary. What? Like, so that's what you're given, then you're... Your perspective is not a kingdom perspective. You're looking at Jesus through worldly eyes. But that's our default tendency. It's so easy. We just fall back into that without any meaning to it. Even with good intentions, we can fall into looking at everything about Jesus through the perspective of what the world around us ingrains in us. We follow the models. We follow the examples. We follow the predictions and the values of worldly things in order to look at Jesus. See, the problem that we struggle with so often is that we look at Jesus from worldly eyes rather than looking at the world through Jesus' eyes. And so how does Jesus respond every time they have this argument about which of them is the greatest? He says, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. We go, wow, that's a cool quote. I love that it's so symmetrical. Hold on. Like, don't brush past that. 
The King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the creator of the universe, the giver and sustainer of all life came to earth not to be served, but to serve us, his creation. Do you understand how counterintuitive and absurd that is? Like if you had the power and lived in the glory and comfort of heaven, are you coming down to help the ants? Like, remember, like, Jesus made us. And this is, this is my favorite way to maintain my own humility. Like, because, you know, I got ego and it likes to run around. And sometimes it gets out of the cage. And so the, my favorite tool to remind myself is to go, how did Jesus make us? That's right. It was out of the dirt. Right? Like, like every time I start doing like, I'm pretty great. I'm like, I'm a sentient mud person. That's, that's where I need to live. And that, man, that'll, that'll humble you up real quick. Like, I'm just, I'm walking, talking mud. Jesus came, the greatest being in existence came to serve the very things he made. Like if that doesn't melt your brain a little bit, you process it more. All throughout the gospel, Jesus draws this contrast that exists between him and his followers and the world and its followers. He says, you want to be mine? It's different. We look different. We act different. We care about different things, value different things, pursue different things. You want to follow me? You want to be my disciple? Here's the first thing you got to do. You have to die. You got to let go of all that other stuff. Let go of that person you were. Let go of all the things that came before. Get rid of that and live for me. Your values need to change. Your desires need to change. Your attitudes need to change. Your focus needs to change. You need to go away and you need to make me greater. Because we live in a world that says greatness comes from being the commander, being the guy that calls the shots and having all the authority and the power to rule over other people. Jesus says, well, for me, greatness is getting your hands dirty, helping other people. The world says greatness is climbing to the top. Jesus says greatness is lowering yourself to the bottom willfully by choice. The world says greatness is all about you. Jesus says greatness is all about me. So the question I have is, which of those methods has characterized your decision-making in the pursuit of your lives? The building up of self or the letting go of self? Because Jesus says, in my kingdom, you become greater by becoming lesser. You want to be great? Be the servant. You want to be great? Be humble. And the frustrating thing about humility is that it's often humiliating. Jesus draws the standard. He declares throughout his ministry and life the importance of serving, the value of serving, this essential nature of serving in the Christian life. Jesus declares it again and again and again. And I want to show you this in John 13. Verse 3. Jesus, knowing that his father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper, he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wash them with the towel that was wrapped around him. At the last meal that Jesus had with his disciples, his closest friends on earth, 
in the shadow of the cross, knowing what was before him. With the pressure of the weight of the sin of the world to come on upon his shoulders, what are the disciples doing? Arguing once again about which of them is the greatest. And so Jesus gets up from the meal. He wraps a towel around his waist. And he gets down and he washes the disciples' feet. And we go, look, see, that's an example of service. That's not even close to what that is. Let me unpack this for just a second, okay? So in the first century, you walk. Jesus walked everywhere he went, with one exception, where he rides a donkey, right? That happens one time. Everywhere else they went, they walked, okay, with their feet. And they wear open-toed sandals. So when you were traveling at this time, you would typically travel about 20 miles in a day. And the roads were made of dirt. Open-toed sandals, dirt. Anytime it rains, you get some mud, your feet get pretty dirty. But there's an added bonus. They didn't have separate lanes for the animals. People who were traveling by animal or with pack animals to carry their things, the animals went on the road with them. Okay? I don't know if you spent a lot of time around animals. But they do not share our value of modesty or decency. <clears throat> okay? Like, you know what I mean? Like, when they need to defecate, they don't just, like, go off to the side, like, hey, let me go up to the trees over here so nobody sees me and I'll protect that. There's like, nah, I'm just going to, they go as they go. You know what I'm saying? They don't care. I mean, they will look right in your eyes and be like, yeah, I'm doing my business. What do you want to make about it? Just all over the road. You got animals all the time on the road doing their business. And you go, well, yeah, you try to avoid that. You might, but when you're walking 20 miles a day and there's enough animals that use the road, sometimes it's not mud you're stepping in. Washing feet isn't just an act of service. It's the most humiliating, degrading act of service imaginable. It was a task reserved for the lowest, the lowest slave in a household. King of kings. Lord of lords, creator of the universe, the being most worthy of honor and praise, the one who is most worthy of being served, that kings should be serving, gets down on his hands and knees and washes the feet of the very creatures he made out of dirt. Verse 12, when he had washed their feet and put, his outer put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If then your Lord and teacher has washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. One of the favorite things that happens in ministry is I'll have people come up and talk to us and they'll be like, hey, I'm ready to go. I'm super excited. I want to serve. Where can I serve? And I'll be like, where do you want to serve? And they'll be like, I'll do anything. What's the greatest need? I'm like, okay, well, let me get you in touch with Carolyn. She runs our family ministry. Uh, she can get you some stuff. We'll go start getting you together and work with the kids. Ah, uh, nah, maybe that's not for me. Hold on. I'm confused. 
right? You've made two statements to me so far. I'll do anything, and I want to be where there's the greatest need. I just told you the anything that you could do and where the greatest need was. You're like, nah, so far everything you've told me is wrong. I don't know where to go from here. See, here's what happens. Jesus declares all throughout his ministry the importance of serving. And so we're like, well, if I'm going to follow Jesus, i got to declare that serving is important too. And so we get really good at declaring it. The difference is Jesus doesn't just declare it. He also demonstrates it. And that's where we sometimes fall off the wagon. Right? I know it's important. I want to declare it. But what I want to make sure everybody knows is that I'm willing to serve. I don't actually want to do the serving. I want you to know that I'm willing to. So long as you don't ask me to do something gross like, you know, work with kids or take out trash. Sometimes it's our ego that gets in the way of our faithfulness to God. To which I always wonder if the greatest being in all existence could take up the lowliest, most demeaning task, what is it that we're too good to do? Jesus says, that the reason he came was not to be served, but to serve. Then he calls us to follow his example. Calls us to be like him. Look, there are very few things, church, in this world that will change the focus of your eyes and alter the attitude of your heart like serving. When you do things for other people, you invest your time, your energy, and your focus on them, serving them, helping them, meeting their needs, even when those needs are not glamorous. You train your heart to be about other people. So one of the things that people, like we say, and I've, I've said this myself, right? It's like, I'm just, you understand, I'm, I'm kind of a selfish person. I'm not very humble. I'm not good at that. Let me tell you why. Those are not innate qualities, Right? It's not like being an extrovert. Like, I was just born an extrovert. I was born humble. Like, that doesn't happen. There's skills. Skills you have to train. Skills you have to practice. Skills you have to learn how to do. Humility and selflessness come through training. And that training is called service. See, serving is not just the foundation of the Christian life. Serving is the formation of the Christian life. You cannot... Live like Jesus without serving like Jesus. You cannot love like Jesus without serving like Jesus. Because it is that serving that trains our hearts to do those things. And sometimes what catches us is not ego, but insecurity. Right? And we'll dismiss ourselves from this command by telling ourselves that we're not good enough. Right? I'm not worthy. Who am I? After like, what could I possibly do that is of value to the kingdom of God? I mean, if you knew what a mess I was, you would know you don't want me on your team. You don't want me helping out here because what? I'd just mess it up. Look at all the people around that are more qualified, more capable than me. Anybody ever felt that? <laughs> Remember the story of the feeding of the 5,000? Jesus feeds an army of people with a little kid's sack lunch. Now, they only counted the men, so we know that's probably closer to fifteen or 20,000 people that are there. It says that Jesus takes the bread, gives thanks, breaks it, and then he has the disciples distribute it. And everyone eats and has their fill. So this is clearly a miracle of multiplication. 
Jesus took a little food, made it into a lot of food. But when does that multiplication happen? It can't be when Jesus broke the bread. Right? When Jesus breaks the bread and a mountain of bread just erupts out of the earth and everybody walks up and grabs all that they want. They eat, they have their fill, and then they grab the leftovers. Right? Because you tell that story very differently. And also, just so we're aware, like the fish, when it says fish, and you're like, yeah, I caught a fish once, that's not what they're talking about. Okay, you're like, oh, maybe it's more like a sardine. No, actually, this fish is so small, it's not even really considered food. They viewed it as a condiment, right? It's like putting ketchup on your burger. That's all it is. It's, there's no substance to it. So if the miracle didn't occur when Jesus breaks the bread, when does the miracle occur? Well, Jesus gives the bread to the disciples, tells them to distribute it. So the disciples go, they go, hey, here's your bread. And they turn and there's more bread. They go, hey, here's your bread. And they turn and there's more bread. They go, hey, here's your bread. And they turn and there's more bread. Eventually they start to catch on like, hey, we're not running out of bread. This is kind of weird. Like we keep giving away bread, there's still the bread. Huh. And the only thing that's getting smaller is the line of people waiting for food. Hear me. The disciples didn't perform the miracle. It's the power of Jesus that performed the miracle. The disciples didn't multiply the food. Jesus multiplied the food. But how? Through their simple little acts of obedience. Through his hands and feet of his people, Jesus performed one of the most iconic and memorable miracles in history. What did the disciples bring to the table? They took what Jesus put in their hands and they turned around and they handed it to somebody else. Anybody feel unqualified for that task? I don't know, man. I'd, I'd probably mess that up. I can't pivot my hips very effectively. See what I'm saying? Jesus performs so often miracles, not with big flashy lights, but through simple acts of obedience. The disciples distributed the food. And everyone ate and had their fill, and there was more food left over than what they started with. That's what serving is. See, God gave us all gifts. Every one of us. Serving is taking the gifts that God gave us and using them the way they were intended for the service of others. Peter tells us that the reason we have gifts is to use them for the serving of the people of God. So the question that we ask ourselves is what has Jesus placed in my hands? Now for some of us that answer is clear. We know very well what our spiritual gifts are and sometimes there's a very clear outlet for how to use them, like the the worship team, right? It's like, okay, I can sing good, I can play instruments, I see very clearly the path that I can use that to serve others. Other times that service is not so clear, that gifting is not so clear. Maybe we don't know it or maybe we just don't see how we could possibly use it, but that's not the question. The question is what has Jesus put in your hands? Maybe it's time. I don't have a lot of skills, but I've got time just to do what's needed. Maybe it's finances. Like, I don't know, how, I don't have any time, but I know how to make money and I can support ministries financially. Maybe it's compassion and just going, these people are hurting and I can go just be with them. Maybe it's patience, whatever it is. The question is, what has Jesus put in your hands? And you can go, well, all I've got is a little bread and a tiny piece of fish. And there's 20,000 people that want to eat. This isn't going to make a difference. Maybe not in your hands, but in the hands of Jesus. 
serving is not about what you can do. It's about what Jesus can do through you. Because the God King who came not to be served, but to serve, doesn't just serve in us. He serves through us. He uses us as vessels for the demonstration and declaration of his glorious power. That's why he calls us to a co-mission. Jesus invites us to be a part of what he's doing. That little boy. If I hear that story, I think about that little boy. What would make him go to Jesus with that little puny basket of a snackable? He understood something that we need to remember. What I have will go a whole lot further in the hands of Jesus than it will in mine. That servant, your skills, your talents, your time, your heart, your life, it goes a whole lot further in the hands of Jesus than it does in your own. And there is not a person that Jesus cannot use to do incredible things for his kingdom. In fact, if you look at the backgrounds of all the people that Jesus chose to use, it's kind of like he's flexing that in front of us. (laughs) You got fishermen? I got fishermen. You got a prostitute? I got a prostitute. You want demon-possessed people? I got former demon-possessed people. He's not going to lords and kings. He's not going to gifted orators and communicators. He's grabbing these people out of the slums and dirt going, you're the guys that I'm going to use to change the world. God created the whole universe out of nothing. When we become nothing, God can make something out of us. Jesus declares the value of service. And the greatest being in the world demonstrates it for us. And then calls us to do the same. My challenge for us, church is that we wouldn't just meet him halfway. Don't just declare, demonstrate. Model the example of Jesus by living out the servant heart of Jesus. And I'll tell you this, there is never a season where it is more impactful than when you're moving into the holidays. But if we, as the people of God, followed the example of God and we served others in response to the service he has and he gave for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We don't understand you, but we thank you that you would leave all that you had behind, everything that we could long for and desire you had and you left it to come serve us. God, I pray that we would never take that for granted, that we would never overlook that, but that would become the motivation of our hearts, that we would live a life of humble service in pursuit of you, that every breath that we take would be breathed for you, that you would be the focus of our hearts and our lives, and when the world tries to distract us, you would remind us of who you are, that our eyes would never drift from you. We praise you. We worship you. We thank you. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for grace. Amen.